I went back to my real job on like a Monday and Kobe's like, Nancy, Nancy, I need you. I need you for 15 minutes. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, MVP and now champion <laughs> of the NBA. What do you need? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to You Think, brought to you by Audiorama. Uh, for anybody who follows the sports landscape across the country, it, it's not hard to realize, it's, it's not hard to find just the level in which women's sports is starting to attain to, right? You, you see every day there's a different story. You know, a couple of weeks back, there was a story about the, the U.S. women's national soccer team winning their case where now the, the, the National Association of, of Soccer in America is going to pay equally both the men's and women's. That was a long-time fight. Um, you know, you see all these big new TV contracts that these women's leagues are, are signing. Um, you know, you put on ESPN, ESPN2, ESPNU, especially throughout the summer and you have the women's college world series, you know, a few, a little while back, you had women's volleyball. I mean, you're starting to really see women's sports in a different light. You're starting to see it at a different level. And again, as a, as a father of a young girl who may or may not ever get into sports or whatnot, you know, is, is besides the point, but it's just, it's cool to see that these women are getting opportunities to not only participate in sports, but also participates in sports on a national platform where they can get recognized and, and be noticed for their incredible abilities and whatnot. So it's, it, I think today's guest is a very timely guest. We're at the, the 50 year anniversary of the landmark 1972 civil rights, uh, title nine decision where you could not, uh, discriminate opportunity in sports and education on the basis of, of sex and gender and just the opportunities from that 1972 decision to how now 50 years later, the way the landscape looks for women's sports is, is drastically different. And today's guest um, was kind of right on the heels of that landmark decision and went ahead, went, went, went forward and had arguably one of the greatest careers in modern sports history, male or female. And, and that guest being Nancy Lieberman. Um, as a, as a player, as an Olympian at the age of 17, and then on as a you know player of the year and first overall draft pick in, in 1980 in, in the women's uh, professional basketball leagues, and then eventually the WNBA, and then as a coach, a general manager, she now coaches a men's professional team in the big three tournament. Um, just someone who has accomplished so much. So to, to have the opportunity to sit down with her and not only share about her upbringing, but kind of living through that transition of, of the way we view women's sports in America to where we see them today. Um, I just think it was timely. I think it was appropriate. And her stories, you know, talking about Muhammad Ali and Kobe Bryant, I, I'm really excited for you guys to, to hear this interview. So without further ado, please enjoy this interview here on You Think with basketball legend, icon, coach, Nancy Lieberman. Hope you guys enjoy. All right, everybody, welcome back to another special episode here today on You Think. I'm really excited about our next guest. Um, for any of you guys who have been following, it, you're well aware it's the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Um, there's been a lot of movement in women's sports and just the elevation and the platform that women's sports has reached in, today, in today's society is, is just super exciting. As a father of a young daughter, it's, it's, it's cool to see the opportunities she's going to have. This next individual is one of the most accomplished women in all of sports, not just in basketball as a player. She's a trailblazer as a coach, a general manager, uh, just one of the most accomplished individuals in the entire history of basketball, men or women's um, Nancy Lieberman. Thank you so much for joining us today on our episode here on You Think. 
I am so thrilled to be here. I've so enjoyed your career and how you carried yourself and just the, you know, class personified and, uh, you deserve to be retired. Well, I appreciate it. And, uh, I appreciate you saying that. It means a lot. I, I find myself now in retirement being more busy, but I don't know if I've ever, when I was studying up on you and obviously I was well aware of your playing career and obviously your most recent, you know, coaching both in the NBA and the big three and all that. But when I really did a deep dive into your background and growing up in, in Brooklyn and, and what you went on to do with the national teams, I don't know if there's been anyone who's accomplished or done more than what you have done. I mean, you talk about busy. So take us back to the roots. Take us back to the beginning. You're a young girl growing up, born in Queens, raised in Brooklyn. You have this love for basketball. Like, where did that love come from that was really that spark to what's gone on to have a Hall of Fame career as a player, a coach um, in the game of basketball? Well, actually, uh, my first sport was football. And I played um, Sandlot football. So I was a poor kid growing up in Queens. You know, my, my dad left when I was little. And, you know, there were days we had no food, we had no heat, we had no electricity, and we were probably one grandparent away from food stamps. So I think my childhood was based more on, on anger and not having that, that love in, that you should have within your family. It, although my mom was a good person, you know, she just didn't understand girls playing sports. So we'd play in the backyard football. We would play at the schoolyard football. And um, we went to a thrift shop one day and there was this <laughs> New York Jets helmet. It was a lamp. And I said, Mom, 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 I mean, I got to have this. It was like 50 cents. So she let me buy it. So I got the lamp home and it was, you know, the white New York Jets helmet yep. and it said jets on the side. So I unscrewed the the wood base. I took a scissor and cut all the wires. Well, now to play on this Sandlot football team, I had to have equipment. So I now had equipment. So I took some tape and put the tape and put towels in my helmet. And I showed up to practice the next day and I was running back a kick. And this guy put his helmet, you know, in my gut and knocked the wind out of me. And I went backwards in my helmet because it was plastic and it was a lamp. It split in half. So the tape was on my chin and the helmet was hanging from each side. So I ended up grabbing my towels. I was very embarrassed. And I went home and I knocked on the door and my mother goes, Nancy, I was like seven, eight years old. She goes, what are you doing with the lamp? I go, it's not a lamp. It's my equipment. It's my helmet. She goes, you broke the lamp and made it a helmet? I said, yeah, I needed a helmet to, to work out, try out for the team. So shortly thereafter, I went to baseball and I was the starting left fielder and shortstop for my PAL baseball team. And the day of our first game, our coach came up to me. I was nine years old and he goes, Nancy, they're not going to let you play because they won't insure you because you're a girl. So, I mean, I'm nine. What do I know about insurance? And all I was just dejected. I felt horrible that I couldn't play with the same guys that I play with before and after. And I didn't really know I was being discriminated against. And I can remember walking into this local YMCA in, in Far Rockaway where I lived. And the first thing I said to the guy behind the glass is I said, I want to play basketball. Can I play with the boys? And he goes, yes. 
I said, I can play in the boys league. He goes, yes, we'd love to have you Changed my life. And, uh, I never looked back. I fell in love with basketball. Think about it. The Knicks were winning, you know, titles, Willis Reed, Walt Frazier, you know, were the darlings of New York and Dr. J was Dr. J. So I had, and, you wore, and I read that you wore number 10 because of Walt Frazier. Is that true? Yes. My entire career I've worn yeah. number 10 and, and yep. Clyde ironically became a, a, a lifelong friend, which is an honor to say. Yeah. A, cu- a couple of weeks back, um, we interviewed coach Kim Mulkey, who I'm, I'm sure obviously you probably know personally, if not, you know, well, but you know, her career, she told the, it's kind of eerily similar. She told the exact same story about playing on, on a boys baseball team as a young girl growing up. She played the whole season with them. And she told us right before the championship game, she could see the adults and the referees and everyone talking on the field. And her coach came over to her and her dad and said, we're sorry, Kim, but they're, they're, if you play, you have to forfeit the game because you're a girl and, and, and whatnot. So like to hear you share a very similar story in a, in a journey that then led you eventually to basketball it's just so crazy for two girls growing up in two different parts of the country to all being experiencing the exact same discrimination based solely by being a girl. Well, there's a lot of those stories that never got out because we didn't have national media. We didn't have social media. So it happened. If it happened in your particular area, maybe the people there knew about it, but there was no way to really spread the, the information so you either had to kind of just toughen up and I toughened up and just started playing in the streets. You couldn't stop me from playing pickup basketball or sandlot baseball. And I was actually a better baseball player than I was basketball player, far better. And it, it wasn't until those moments that I realized, you know, there's you, you have epiphanies in your life. And so I can remember walking in from the park one day and seeing this guy on the black and white TV. And he's like, I'm the greatest of all times. I beat Joe Frazier like I beat George Foreman, like I beat Sonny Liston back in 1964. I am the greatest of all times. And I was like mesmerized. And so I went in the kitchen and I'm standing in the door frame. And I, I look at my mother and I go, I'm going to be the greatest of all times. I'm going to knock you out in two rounds. She goes, I'm your mother. <laughs> and I, I said, okay, well, I'm going to knock him out. And she goes, him's your brother. And I said, well, you better used to it. I'm going to be the greatest of all times. And she goes, why are you talking like that? I don't know, but I'm going to be great. I'm going to make history. <laughs> I was so stupid. <laughs> Channeling your Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, probably at the time. That, yeah. Is it safe to say, is it safe to say if you weren't banned from playing baseball you said you were better at baseball than you turned out to be at basketball which is hard to believe because you're regarded as arguably the best woman who's ever played is there an argument to be said if you weren't discriminated against and kept out of baseball you think you still would have found your way to basketball it's a great question nobody's ever asked me that ironically because i could have played on our boys baseball team at far rockaway high school um, I, I could have played and had the, the skill set, but basketball, um, actually ended up availing itself to me in so many other areas. You know, basketball brought me to Rucker Park as a 11, 12, 13 year old, little redheaded, skinny Jewish kid girl. Wow. And, you know, my brothers in the park were kind of like, you know, I took two trains to get there. I took 
first of all, I took money from my mother's wallet without telling her, you know, which I've apologized. <laughs> then okay, I, so that's in the open. We're good. <laughs> okay. Uh, so then I I got on the A train, took that into Manhattan, switched trains, got on the E, got off at 155th, had T-shirts in my jacket, so I looked bigger. And when I was on the train. I would kind of glare at people, like do it to them before they do it to you. So they thought I was crazy and they maybe were a little afraid of me. And when I can remember walking in the park, these guys were like, uh, hey, Nancy, or not Nancy, uh, little girl, are you lost? I said, no, are you? And they were, <laughs> they started laughing. And I said, I thought you guys were good. You know, this is Rucker Park. And one guy says, you you know where you are. I said, I just said Rucker Park. Is your name Rucker? And he goes, no. I said, good. It ain't your park. And I want to play and I need you to help me. And my mom don't know I'm here. She thinks I'm at the schoolyard across the street from the house. They're like, you came 15 minutes to play here? So that cut through all the racism, the, fa- the fear. Yeah. The, there was such a respect that this little girl would pick up and go on a train that I was so protected um, by guys at Rucker, uh, they would ride the train home with me and they'd come into my house and you could just see neighbors and my mother, like, who are these black guys in the house? And I say, Ma, they're my friends. And, you know, I, I didn't realize at, at that age, let's say 12, 13 years old, I was teaching my mom not to be racist, not to be judgmental or profiling people because through sports, we we built this bond together. You know, that's why, as you well know, sports is a great equalizer. I mean, you never try to tease somebody up because they were black or, or, or Somalian or, you know, Samoan or you just hit, you did your job. Yep. That's what I did. And there was no texting. There was no emailing. There was no FaceTime. It's like, I'm going to be on the, the train that gets in at 512. And they would meet me at the station and the guys would walk me into the park. And because I had that fiery red hair, they caught, they nicknamed me Fire. And as I started getting a little older, um, I mean, they knocked the hell out of me. I, I got to be honest. And it, there was no excuses that I would have to get up. I, I didn't cry, but I was very athletic. Um, I was, you know, five, you know, five, eight, and I could touch the rim and hang on the rim. And I was like the carnival monkey at, at Rucker Park. That's unbelievable. Fire. Hang so on. how old are you, how old are you at this time when you first start going? Well, I started going, I was 11, 12 years old. And how old are the guys that you're playing with? Probably 17, 18. So they're, yeah, they're teenagers. Okay. And how long did this period of time go? Like how often would you go to Rucker Park? How, for how many years? How many times until a week? Until like, I went to college. Until I got wow. to college. I went to Old Dominion. I was there virtually every week. Then I started wow. playing in leagues. Um, then I started playing in the, the Rucker Pro-Am League at 15, 16, 17 years old with some of the great legends of Rucker Park. And where you see, you've seen the pictures from, you know, that area of people hanging in the trees, sitting on rooftops and they would let me play. I mean, I'm the really still, I think the only woman they've let play in the, well, that's what I was going to ask you. Is, Is there any other women playing or it's you and just a bunch of men? Yes. And I mean, these guys were unbelievable. I mean, literally play playground legends. And, you know, a lot of things have happened to me, Greg, in my life that I'm really blessed. Uh, God's blessed me beyond understanding. 
but on August 6th, I'm being inducted into the Rucker Park Hall of Fame. Uh, And I'm so, it gives me chills just uh, saying that because, you know, respect is respect, right? You have to earn it no matter who you are. And the trust and the love and the relationships that I have uh, with my family um, up in Rucker, uh, I'm very, very grateful uh, that they think that way of me Uh, that they come back. They asked me to come back. Uh, I mean, Rod Strickland and I hosted the 50 year anniversary of Rucker Park about five, uh, six years ago. And I just love Bob McCullough and, and everybody up there from each one, teach one to the people that I played against. I mean, we still stay in touch. Uh, It's just, I I could, I could listen to you tell stories because I, again, I told you before the show started, I grew up right right outside of New York City. So Rucker Park was something that everyone in the Northeast is very aware of. As you said, some, you know, street ball legends, guys have come out of there that are just legends and and they're, you know, they're kind of their aura and mystique travels all throughout that region of the country. So to he- to hear you and now just like in my mind picture this skinny as in your words, a skinny little redhead white girl getting off the train to go play at Rucker Park of all places. I'm like, I'm envisioning it in my head and it's just, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to me. Um, Something we've talked a lot about here on this show and something that I've spent a lot of time just kind of reflecting on and, and considering is the notion of, can you teach that competitive spirit? Can you teach, listening to you talk and listening to you say, I'm a 12 year old girl and I'm getting knocked down and I'm fighting and I'm trying to challenge people on the subway and I'm trying to challenge people on the train. And like, I I hear, can you teach that? And if like, where did you get it from? Were you born that way? Did you have an influence? Maybe your upbringing, you you mentioned the conditions of your life. Like, I always wonder like how much of that is nature versus nurture to like, some people are just born with that edge that they will fight you to the death. And then other people are a little more passive and, and, and a little more reserved and things need to kind of come their way. And they're not in, in your experience. And now you've experienced all ends of the spectrum now, as you, as you've aged, like, what is your take on that? Well, again, another great question. You know, I think it's a, a byproduct of my childhood. You know, I felt less, I felt like the underdog. I felt like I was always having to prove myself no matter where I went, because I wanted, if you picked me in a game in the park and, you know, remember, right. Remember, yep, of I'll, course. Take, I'll take Greg, I'll take yeah, Nancy. I'll yeah, take and Greg. someone's last. Yeah. And so the fact that somebody would say, we'll take her, it was almost like saying you love me, you know? So what I wasn't getting at home and, and I was angry. I, I had an angry childhood. So I think I took a lot of my anger out on who I played against and the fact that I was always playing against guys, um, they were teaching me the physicality of the game, that not to back down and to get up and not cry. And it followed me because, you know, even a- as I ended up, you know, making the Olympic team in high school, like when I was in high school, I was a very, very physical player and girls didn't like me because they thought that I was trying to intimidate them. And I think probably I was because that's part of, you know, the mental aspect. There's the physical aspect of sports. There's the mental aspect of sports. And if you're so worried about playing against me, you can't do what you're supposed to do. But that's what I was taught by my environment. 
Uh, I was taught to be fearless. And uh, even if it meant that I had to get into a fist fight at Rucker, the next time somebody, a guy would think twice about, she's going to come back at me and this is not going to look good. And I, I will say in certain parts of my career, um, when, you know, my first pro coach in 1980, before I got to the WBL was Pat Riley and the Lakers. And I was playing in a men's summer league at Xavier High School in New York. And Jane Pauley did a story that I was playing against all these NBA guys. So Dr. Buss and Jerry West saw the interview. And the next day I had a phone call saying, we'd like you to play for us in our summer league. And you know, that show Showtime that's yeah. now on. Yeah. It actually, that show has put so many of the things that I didn't know. Like I didn't know why, you know, Coach McKinnon wasn't there. I, why was you know, Coach Riley there. I, I just went to play. I didn't know all the personal stories behind the scene. And the first day of practice, you know, Pat didn't want me because I didn't look like the point guard that he had imagined. But Dr. Buss, outside the box thinker, he just wanted this to be. He was so ahead of his time. You know, at this point, you know, I'm 5'10", I'm about 155 pounds, you know, I've, I'm developing into this pro player. Well, Pat had one of his legendary three-hour practices and wasn't happy that I was there. But every time he would say, I need five guys on the court, I run on the court first. So I would then get repetition. I'd make mistakes. He'd coach me up. I, I would get more reps and understand what he was wanting out of his offense. And I'd walk off the court with my other four teammates and the next five came on. And I was like, if you don't know how to do that, I'll show you, you know, this is where the first pass needs to go. So I was setting the tone of, I have a value and I'm not afraid. So apparently they're in the locker room after practice. And Pat looks at, you know, Paul Westhead and Mike Tebow, who coaches the Washington Mystics. And he goes, who, who the hell does she think she is? She acts like she's our best player. She's telling people where to go and how to do this and that. He goes, what are we going to do with her? And and Pat tells this story. Four days later, I was his starting point guard because he, he's in the locker with his coaches. He goes, she tried to start two fist fights. They knocked her down. They beat her down. And she she didn't cry. She didn't quit. So a lot of that was the year before I had met Muhammad Ali, my hero. And you know, we had won the championship, our second championship at Old Dominion, and I'm asked to go to the New York Stock Exchange for a fundraiser. And I'm going up the escalator with my mom and my best friend, Barbara. And I go, so who's the other athlete? And he just kind of looks at me. And it was kind of fake confidence. You know, I'm two-time player of the year in college basketball, but I was full of hooey. I was still broken uh, from my childhood, but I was hiding it behind Nancy Lehman. The door opens and it was like that Oprah, it was crazy. And there he is. There's Muhammad Ali. And we are the two featured athletes together. Is that crazy? That's wild. I couldn't breathe. It's and my, my mom walks over to him, Greg, and says, Mr. Muhammad, how are you? I'm Rini from Queens. And my daughter is the greatest of all times. And he goes, there's only one greatest of all times and it's me. And he, he asked me to come over and my heart was jumping out of my, my shirt. And he goes, your mom says you're good. And I'm like, no, Mr. Muhammad, like I couldn't even look at him. I'm not really that. And I stop and go, I'm the greatest of all times. And he goes, there's two of us. 
I go, yeah, and I hit people too. And he goes, hey, I'm going to ask you to stop hitting people. I said, you hit people. He says, I get paid to hit people. So he immediately sized me up and said, come back to the hotel with us. This man said, I'm going to ask you a few things. He goes, I'm going to ask you to stop hitting people. You have to have conflict resolution. I want to know about your childhood. He was so deep. He said, Nancy, I want you to respect everybody, but I want you to fear nobody, whatever you do in your life. And then he says, God made you special. And I was so stupid. I went, you know, everybody, you know, God too. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, I cannot let her loose. I had him to the day we buried him seven years ago. Wow. Every major decision, he would call me, we would talk. I am a function of who he is. He taught me about racism. He taught me about um, philanthropy. He taught me about, you know, black America and, you know, what made them happy, what made them sad. He taught me, he said, there's two people in life. There's givers and takers. And he goes, I want you to be the giver, but I want you to be a champion every single day. The stuff, the wisdom he gave me, And ironically, like these last 15 years before he died, Lonnie would say, hey, um, you know, Muhammad would like to see you. And I'd get on a plane and go to Phoenix. I'd sit in the house. I'd hold his hand. I would kiss him. I would hug him. I would just tell him how much I loved him and what he meant to me and how he just, you know, kind of molded me. He knew I was going to coach in the NBA before I coached in the NBA. He was just so keenly aware and I'm so grateful to Lani Ali for giving me access, you know, and proximity to him always. He changed wow. my life. It gives, it gives me goosebumps listening to you tell that story. I mean, obviously everyone, you know, Muhammad Ali is arguably the singer, single greatest individual in all of sports. I mean, transcendent trailblazer, you know, those words get thrown around a lot. And, and again, we've seen Ali be, you know, movies and books and documentaries. I mean, everyone's very aware of, of him and, and the way he embraced his activism and, and he wanted to change the world and he was very vocal about it and he kind of wore it like a badge of honor. He, he did not shy away from that. In the midst of all of this, this transition now from you, from high school to your national, your time on the national team, traveling around the world, and then your tran- you know, transition to college and then obviously into the professional leagues. Like, did you, when did you consider yourself, if ever, a trailblazer? Like, did you ever consider yourself and take a deep breath and step back and say, I'm changing the landscape in the future for how women participate in sports and how women are seen as athletes. And like, did you rationalize that in real time? Or is this something you, as you look back on now, your career, you look at it with a little more of that lens. When, and you know, this better than anybody, when you're competing, you're in the moment. You're just, you're an actionary, um, you know, movement and you're taking in the, the, the game plan and the strategy. I mean, how many times did you come off the field and the sideline reporter goes, Greg, so what did you think? We don't. You're thinking, we're not thinking. We're just doing what we're conditioned to do. So the answer is no, I never allowed myself to exhale because again, and, and my life has a lot of Ollieisms, but you know, he said to me, you know, again, Nancy, there's the hunter and the hunted. If you're the hunter, you're, you're always 
going. You're always striving. If you're the hunted, you're on top of the mountain and you're exhaling. And he said, I'm going to ask you not to exhale. I said, but, you know, people think I'm, I'm the greatest of all time. He goes, no, that's what they say. We're still hunting. We're still trying. That's why he came back for three belts. Um, that's why I played at 39 and 50. I was, it, it, it's, I, as Dion Sanders has always said, you got to have dog in you. If you lose your dog, you've lost your intensity. You've lost your, your, your focus and your want and your grind. And I haven't lost the dog in me. It's, it's crazy, you know, that I'm with you here and I still am so competitive. And I, you know, the greatest thing you can do is play the game because you determine probability and outcome. And if you coach the game, you're still in the foxhole, you're strategizing with incredible athletes and you're trying to celebrate their gifts and make it come together in the name of, of, of winning and teamwork. And then if you don't do that, you do TV and you get to celebrate the game and promote the game that brought you so much joy and happiness. And I've had all three of those in, in my life. And I wake up happy. I wake up blessed. I wake up thinking, how can I help somebody? How can I inspire somebody? What can I do for my players? Quite frankly, what can I do for, it starts in my house with my son. I want to be a great mom to him. I want, you know, it's not going to be perfect, but what can I do to give him some solid, solid thoughts of what he wants to be? It, it, to hear you say, I, the, we, I always say to my kids, I, I, again, they're, they're young. I say, the second you guys think you've got it, you're dead. It doesn't matter if you were the best player for that day, the next day, you have to do it all over again. And I said, that's the mentally exhausting part of sports. It's not for everybody, but I'll tell you what, if you can master that mental discipline that every day you wake up is another opportunity to prove yourself, you can do this for as long as your talents allow, but that mental struggle, what you, what you're describing is not easy for a lot of people. It's, a mentally exhausting existence, but I'll tell you what, it is a powerful, powerful tool. So to hear you put it in your words, I think is a great lesson for the families and the coaches and the people that are going to listen to this episode. And along those lines, I want to transition a little bit along those lines. You've been quoted as saying that you are who you are because of opportunity. That was a word that you felt strongly. A lot of that opportunity came on the back of the 1972 landmark civil rights case what we all know as title nine. We just were in the midst of celebrating the 50th anniversary of that um, in 1972. Talk a little bit about now you were on the heels. You were, you know, you were seven, you were 14 when it came out. So you're just entering high school. You're entering, you know, you're going off to play in college. You know, what changes did you see when you say opportunities as a result, especially specifically to title nine, like what did you see from your high school career now playing on a women's basketball team? going to college and playing for a women's basketball team, the need now to mix with men and kind of fight for your place at the table was changing. It wasn't there, but it was, it was evolving as you move forward. Like take us a little bit through that transition post title nine. Well, I don't know at the beginning if it was a transition because, you know, back in, in 1972, you're, you know, you're talking about exactly I'm 14 or so years old. I don't even know what Title IX is. You know, okay. it might be a law, but that law wasn't put out there in the New York Times or the Daily News. Uh, 
on the regular where we could see it, understand it, and go, oh my gosh, that's going to affect us. Yeah, so you're not feeling it at the moment. No, uh, uh, nobody in my generation did. I, I will speak for my generation. We just didn't know. When I got to Old Dominion University and I got a full scholarship, it was the Donna Doyle Scholarship Award, uh, she had played and I was, I didn't realize I was the first female to ever get a scholarship at, in basketball or sports at Old Dominion. I thought everybody got scholarships, full scholarships, because you know, my, my friends on the men's team were all on scholarship. And it wasn't until probably most of the way through my freshman year, I was talking to some of my teammates and I found out some of them had slivers. It's like, how could this be? And I was talking to my athletic director, Dr. Jim Jarrett, who actually actually was a visionary. He was so ahead of his time. And he promised me, he goes, Nancy, we're going to have equality here at Old Dominion University. And I was like, really? You're, you're going to have nice uniforms. You're going to have great practice conditions. You're going to have good practice times. You're no longer going to ride in vans or these like limo type cars to games. You're going to get buses. You're going to play in Madison Square Garden. You're, I, it was unbelievable the dollars that he put behind women's basketball. We were playing in front of 6,000 people virtually every night. Everywhere we went on the road, it was the highest attendance that university had ever had. And we became kind of like America's team because so many people, you know, because I got there, it was right after the Olympics. And, you know, I was in high school when I was uh, in 76. I was a senior in high school when I made the Olympic team. And I was a junior in high school when I made the Pan Am game when we won uh, we won the, the the gold medal for the Pan Am silver medal. So going into Old Dominion, it was a big story, you know, because I had had all that experience. But my teammates were amazing. And I felt bad because, you know, I mean, we all want to be liked. And I didn't want anybody to look at me like, you know, she's got, you know, the lion's share of everything. But I did know this. I did know that I was a gatekeeper to the game. And again, throughout my my tenure at uh, at Old Dominion, the four years, I didn't really know that much about Title IX. But I can tell you right now that Title IX, that educational act, as you mentioned, of 1972, in, in my opinion, it's one of the um, most important pieces of legislation in the last, in, in the 20th century. It is... It's not, Title IX is not an opinion. Title IX is a law. And both genders have to be able to have their dreams. I mean, that seems so simplistic, but if if you're a mom or a dad, I, I would like to hear the conversation of you telling your daughter you don't want her to have the same educational and athletic opportunities as your son. Because I am a critical thinker I know inertia. I, I know STEM. I know technology. I know engineering. I know math. If I have more points than you, I win, you lose. I learned that from participating in sports. 80% of Fortune 500 companies right now are hiring women and, and young boys who have played sports by the time they were 15 years old. You can yell at me. You can scream at me. You can tell me what I did wrong. We right? I mean, Greg, we're we're yeah, wired. It's the ultimate. Strategy. It's the ultimate meritocracy, right? And that's the yes. world we've operated in our entire lives has been merit based. If you're good, you're good. If you're not, someone's going to take your job. If you got to work harder, like 
it was the ultimate. That's why sports, in my opinion, is so beautiful. That's why it's so special. And we need to do everything we can to preserve it starting at the young age all the way up until your days are done. So I, I couldn't agree more with your perspective. And I love what you said because it, it you know, every, some, some people, some parents want participation awards. And I think that in some instances, it's good to participate. I, I encourage that. But when you start getting to some of these elite levels, you have to earn the right to be on that team. You have to earn the right not only to be on the team, but to have playing time. And now I didn't know that as a coach, as a player, but now as a coach and you're divvying up minutes, it's like the one thing you have to tell your, your players is, you know, I, I, there's nothing, I'm not trying to suppress anything you're doing, but I have to put the best players to play well together. I have to look out individually for you, but I have to look out collectively, you know, for the sake of the team. Go ask Kobe. I mean, Kobe was my guy. I mean, Kobe was another lightning rod in my life uh it's, it's funny that when i played at 50 and i was doing tv for espn i went back to my real job on like a monday and kobe's like nancy nancy i need you i need you for 15 minutes and i'm like oh i'm sorry mvp and now champion of the nba what do you need and he's like just give me 15 minutes i'm sitting in a room with him at the liquor practice facility and i thought i was in a think tank he's like why did you play how did you train? Did your body hurt? Were you worried about what people thought? I mean, uh, what was your training regimen? What did you eat? Did you sleep at night? Uh, he was amazing. The MVP of the NBA and the champion of the NBA wanted to know what a 50-year-old white woman went through because he is non-discriminatory. If he can take something, he will take it. And I love that about him. And that is why he had that Mamba mentality. Yep. It was, I mean, go read his quote, you know. I mean, I, yeah. I, bought, I bought my kid his book for his birthday. It, I bought my oldest son for his 11th birthday um, just a couple of weeks ago. We bought his book. Just take, read a little bit of it each night. Just that mentality of what makes him social. Well, so, I, I mean, I think everyone now wants to know, in a nutshell, what did you tell him? What did you do? For anyone who doesn't know, Nancy, at the age of 50, went back and played in the WNBA and it was a, it was a huge deal and you were 50 years old and you went back and you trained. So what did you tell Kobe? Like, what did you do to prepare yourself to go back and play professional basketball at the age of 50? Well, one of the first things I said is uh, I, I knew that I was going to have this opportunity. So I had started training almost, uh, almost a year earlier, just making sure I had a responsibility to, I didn't want to embarrass anybody or the sport. Uh, so I started working out and, and I've never stopped working out. I, I work out six days a week, but basketball or football, it, it's a very specific, you know, sport and movement for your body. And I made sure that, you know, I was building up um, my strength, my conditioning, and you can do all that. But I told him, I said, Kobe, the most important thing for me, and I ended up telling this to Dion when he came back at 37, to play for the Ravens is you got to play the sport. Okay. You can run, you can lift, you can do yoga, you can do stretching, you can do everything you want. At the end of the day, you have to work on your skill set. And he was like, wow, you know, everybody's talking about the conditioning. And I said, you got to get in a gym. I've got to be able to shoot shots. I've got to be able to make shots. I need to be able to stop, turn, pivot, jump, transition. 
I had to get that back. And that was hard because, you know, at that age, you're not in the gym every day, you know, playing basketball. And so I, I really forced myself to start playing pickup basketball every day with guys. Now, I didn't have to run as fast as I did in my 20s or my early 30s. Um, but I will say this in life and for your, your, your son, everybody has a max. Okay. So you have to master the things that take no talent. It did not take talent for me to show up and to get to the gym. It didn't take talent for me to have a finisher's mentality to get through that. And it doesn't take talent for me to work out. Right. So master the things that take no talent. Above all things, if I'm not in good shape, I can't do what I'm supposed to do. And we all have a max. Like if you and I are in a foot race right now and I'm 63 years old, you might beat me, but I didn't lose. You have your max and I have my max. And, you know, so I'm conditioned to think differently. And, you, you know, um, that's, that's how I've always been. Um, and that's, I'm conditioned by my system. I'm conditioned by whether it was Ali or Kobe or, you know, some of the people that were great influences in my life. Um, and I'm not afraid. So many people are so afraid of failure. They can't see success. Um, we've had a lot of, we've had a lot of really cool guests on, on you think, I'm not sure if there's been a minute of a more powerful message so clearly communicated, so clearly than what you just said. If we could take that and bottle that up, I, I, that, I don't know how else to even say it other than what you, the way you just worded that and the way you just presented that, that mentality, that approach, that philosophy. If there's one thing anyone gets out of not only this interview, but just you think in general, that's it. So I thank you for that because that perspective and clarity I just, it couldn't be more well said. Well, you know, the one thing that I did share like with Kobe and I, I told him I was like this when I was 15 before making the USA team, I said, you have to see it. You have to say it to be it, see it. You have to see yourself being on the Olympic team every day. I'm brushing my teeth. I'm like, I'm going to be on that Olympic team. I know it's never happened before. I know they've never had, you know, a baby on the team, but I had to see it to say it. And then when I made the team, I knew in my heart, my mind, I belong there. And that was important to me because you have to love you. If you don't love, if I don't love me, why should you love me? So that is the thing that Ali instilled in me. He taught me how to love myself because that's where I was broken as a person. And then the, the sadness is that, you know, two nights um, before Kobe died, I was in the studio doing TV and you know, I do the, the Thunder Games. Mm -hmm. And um, there were a couple guys doing Spurs and Pelicans and they were talking um, that Kobe had mentioned to the media that said some women could play in the NBA. And I heard them saying, Oh yeah. Can you believe what? And I went, <clears throat> you know, I'm behind you. <laughs> and they started laughing. Um, Matt awesome. Bonner and um, Greg Buckner, who's now an associate head coach with the Cavs. Yep. I love those guys. And I go, well, let's see what Kobe says. So I was just messing around. 
So yeah. I texted Kobe and I said, Kobe, um, you want to talk about women playing against men? And he goes, yes. I said, when? He said, now. We had a thread. I still have it on my phone. We, um, we were texting for about 50 minutes before I had to go on air. I can't read you all the curse words um, that <laughs> Coach put in there about how people view us as women and don't think yeah. we can. And we had been, and, and here's a life lesson. When you say you're going to do something with somebody like me coming on your, your podcast, do it. Okay. Do it. You just, nothing is, is given in time. Kobe and I had been talking for a long time about me coming out to coach Gigi's team for a day or so. Mm -hmm. And he hit me that night. He says, so when are you going to come coach Gigi's team? And I said, when do you want me to? And I said, I can come out next week. And he said, that would be perfect. I said, I will text you Monday. I have TV Monday, Tuesday. I can come out Wednesday, go home Thursday, do TV on the, you know, Thursday, Friday. Mm -hmm. He said, okay. Um, I said, um, he says to me, uh, I, you have her for as long as you have the team for as long as you want. Um, and I said, that'll be great. He goes, if you need me to help, I'll be there. And I went, duh. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I had to do an appearance. I had told my son who's playing in, in Tel Aviv I, and he had just landed Sunday morning in Italy. I said, TJ, you know, I was excited. I, I, I fangirl all the time. And I said, yeah, Kobe and I were talking. I'm going to go out and, and, you know, coach Gigi's team. And I left it at that because that's all I knew Friday night. Saturday, I'm doing an appearance somewhere in California. And about midnight or so, Kobe texts me or calls me. And he says, hey, you know, he's top chop. He's very detailed and organized. He says, okay, Wednesday, fly to L.A., Uber to the house. We'll grab some food. We'll get in the helicopter. We'll go to the Mamba Academy. You have the girls, like I said, as long as you want. We'll come back, stay at the house next morning. You leave. I was excited because I actually wanted to get to know Gigi and I wanted to get to know Vanessa better because I had only met him, them like one other time. Um, when my phone rang at this event on Sunday morning, and my, this is how God works in my life. I thought I put my phone on, on vibrate, but it wasn't. TJ called me. I grabbed my purse and I run through the back doors and I didn't want to disturb anybody at this event. And TJ, you know, your kid's voice, right? Of course. Mother, mother. And I'm like, TJ, what's wrong? He goes, mom. And I'm like, baby, what's wrong? I'm at a conference. He goes, you haven't heard. I said, TJ heard what? He goes, mom, Kobe Bryant died. I go, no, he didn't. I talked to him last night. He goes, mom, his helicopter crashed and I thought you were on it. Oh my God. I about hit the floor and these two secret service guys grabbed me. And all I heard one say was it's Miss Lieberman. And they took, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. Oh it was too, God. it was too close. It was too, it was, it was too much. That's, oh my God. And what a story. I'm so sad that, you know, we all have like these regrets that sometimes we can't get rid of. And I'm so sad that I never went out there before because we've been talking about it. And sometimes you just got to do it just gotta do and it. stop talking about it is my point. Long winded. 
and I'm sorry. Uh, well, I'm, no, I'm glad you shared that story. I don't know how we appropriately segue to our last topic, but I'm going to do my best. I don't know if there's a great way to move on from that. That's an incredibly powerful and sad story. I, I remember when I was in the hospital with my youngest son, who's also named TJ, as your son is. And um, he was in the hospital for, for a procedure and we were sitting in the recovery room and I'll never forget breaking news, Kobe Bryant. And, and so I'll never forget where I was when I, when I saw that news as well. But obviously you had a personal relationship that made that news even more shocking and disturbing. In my attempt now to segue, the, the last segment that I want to talk to you about, of course, a big element here on you think is parenting, coaching. So in my experience, my father was my high school football coach that everyone who watches the show knows that I actually had him on as a Father's Day interview last week. And um, so obviously that parent slash coach role in my mind, a parent and a coach have a lot of very similarities, right? They have to do some things that are hard in the best interest of the kids. They got to love them. They got to hold them accountable. They got to push them. They got to encourage there. It's a mixed bag of parenting and also of coaching. And sometimes they overlap. Um, I, I know now you're going to have an opportunity to coach your son, TJ. You mentioned he played overseas in Tel Aviv, um, played professionally, played obviously growing up was a great basketball player. He's now going to play on your big three team. You're, you're the coach and he's going to be a member. And you said to me earlier, you said either he's going to kill me or I'm going to kill him, but it should be a lot of fun. What, grow, just raising your son in, in that basketball world, and obviously his mom is Nancy Lieberman. Like, what was your youth experience now as a mother raising your son, TJ? It, it's, it's been challenging um, because when I played in the WNBA in 97, you know, TJ was three, four years old, and he always used to ask me, because I took him with me to Phoenix when I played for the Mercury I had the security guard in the arena changing his diaper during practice. He was always around, you know, my teammate, Cheryl Miller, my coach, uh, the great Hall of Famer. And he would always say, Ma, how come everybody knows us? Everywhere we went on road trips, he had his little roller bag. And he'd go, Ma, people say hi to us all the time. And as TJ grew up, I think it was a little hard on him as he started getting into high school junior high, college, because they would ask me to speak at Renner, you know, middle. They would ask me to speak at Plano West Senior, you know, at the banquet. They asked me when he first went to Niagara to speak at Niagara, then at Richmond. And he was always like, Ma, can other moms don't do that? And, I, and you know, what do you want to say? Well, TJ, your mom's different. I, you know, I didn't want to it's hard on that path. But I, I will say this. Um, when we spoke when he was at Richmond and he was really turning into, uh, he made, you know, a concerted effort to take his game and to be serious about it. And he was the A-10 player of the year. And he said to me, he goes, mom, how do I know who likes me for me? And not just because you're my mother. And it's kind of a tricky balance because I remember him we had the all-star game here in Dallas at Jerry's world for the first time. I think it was 2010, 11. And, you know, TJ was always like, ma, I just, you know, everybody knows. I wish they just would just. And then he comes in the kitchen. He goes, mom, is there any way we can get tickets for the all-star game? And I said, TJ, I, I don't really know. He goes, mom, you are Nancy Lieberman. <laughs> you are a hall. Now he now. wanted it. You can pick up the phone right now and call your friend David Stern 
and you can get us tickets. So now he was fine with mom being there. <laughs> so it's a it's a tricky balance, but you know, one thing people that know me know that I, I really I know that people trust me. So like I'm not going to put somebody on my team or tell you to sign somebody if I don't believe that. I will not cross that line. You know, integrity is important to me. And I, I, I appreciate that people respect my opinion. If you would have said to me four years ago, hey, why don't you put TJ uh, on your big three team? I would have said, no, he can't play at this level. He, he doesn't have the experience. Well, after, you know, four or five years in Europe, playing for Maccabi Tel Aviv, playing Euro League, the highest league beyond the NBA. And, you know, then gaining that experience at 27. And then he played this year for the Washington Wizards G League team, the Capital City Go-Go. And I saw like, wow, he can, he can play at this level. So I took him with the, the second pick, my second pick. And in our first game in Chicago, um, TJ hit the game winning three to win the game for us a couple weeks ago. And there he was. I didn't know whether to hug him or to shake his hand or high drive him or chest bump him. <laughs> I didn't know what the heck to do. Because I didn't want to be like, you know, too overbearing. Right. So what did you do? Did you hug him? Uh, and I just, you know, I went over, I gave him a hug. I said, congratulations. Yeah. Nice shot. Oh, that's and, awesome. You know, but I have my other players that I, I need to be equally as, you know, excited for what we did. But I was really happy for him. And it's, but it is a tricky balance. You know, we were doing an interview the other day and he goes, yeah, well, she's my coach and I'm her player. And then in the middle of the game, he's like, mom, mom, should we <laughs> like, it's, so, it, it's not easy. Like I said, my dad was coached me and all my brothers. There was three boys. He coached us. He coached this high school for 40 years. We grew up in it. And it's hard. I mean, it, it's, it's hard playing for your parent. Um, it's hard coaching your kid. I coach, you know, I have three young kids. I coach them in various levels of, you know, again, they're, they're young in youth sports, but you know, there's always that battle between you want to be fair, but then you almost find yourself being overly critical of your kid to almost like prove a point to the other families. Like you are being fair, Yes, but then you also don't want to, it's not your kid's fault that he's your kid. So you almost don't want to take it too far. It, like you said, it is a hard balance. Like which approach do you take? Like, do you find yourself sometimes being overly critical of TJ so that none of the other players look around and go, Oh, well, it's it. He, she doesn't come down on hard as him as he would, you know, as she would on me. Cause it's her kid. Like, do you feel yourself like overcompensating a little bit at times or no? I try not to. And, and I have to have an awareness of that, but I will say like, okay, hey, TJ, and, you know, everything's about tone and tenor, right, of how you talk to somebody that either turns them off or turns them on. And it's like, hey, it was, you know, we we, we were down two points in the game on Sunday mm -hmm. and you try to make an extra pass in the lane and it got stolen. And in the big three, you can go right back up like when we played in the schoolyard, yeah. you don't have to clear it. And, you know, so they got an easy bucket maybe just go up with that. So I, I, I'm very aware, but I want to talk to my players like that. I am firm, but I am fair, but I am no nonsense because there is an expectation of while you're why you are here. And, you know, we have won a championship in this league. Um, I believe that every team in this league owes it to Ice Cube 
to give the best of who we are. It's, you know, this is not Skittles. Everybody doesn't get to get paid as a professional player or coach. And you have a responsibility. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a icon and a cultural changer. You know, when he signed me and he said, I want you to be the first female head coach in a men's professional league, um, it was unbelievable. And one of the, the cool things that he said is you will be the highest paid coach in the league. Whatever Dr. J or Reggie Theus or George Gervin, uh, you know, Rick Barry, Michael Cooper, wow. Gary Payton, you will make, tell your agent they won't have to negotiate your salary. <laughs> if the world was like that, Greg, how cool would that be? Because, you know, women still make 80 cents on the dollar and, and women of color make between 57 and 68 cents on the dollar. That's not cool. It's not cool to have like that same description, but have that disparity. And we have to get better. And I applaud um, my boss, Ice Cube. Um, I, it's, it's a blessing to play for him. It, and and oh. it's just, it, it, just as, as we kind of bring this to a close, I mean, when you, when you recap your career, not only, you know, of course, as a player playing on national teams, gold medalist playing an Olympic, you know, Olympian, um, again, at high, in high school, you were 17 years old playing in your first Olympics. It was unheard of at the time and probably equally unheard of today. And then obviously you get into coaching and, you know, second ever woman to coach in the NBA as an assistant coach. And now the head coach of the big three, you've been a GM in the WNBA. I mean, when you look at your accomplishments and, and your experiences and everything you've done, I'm going to put you on the spot. What are you most proud of? Like, is there one moment, one time you broke through a glass ceiling, one time you, what, it could be anything, player, coach, personally. Like, is there one moment you look back on this laundry list of accomplishments and experiences that brings you the most pride? I would say the greatest thing that's ever happened to me was to be able to play for my country, to play in the Olympics, to put my hand, I will always be a hand over the heart when the national anthem comes on. I understand people have different views on that and it's okay. You know, this is what I do and I have my reasons because of what it meant to me growing up. And that was a seminal moment for me. And you, you have no clue what it feels like when you're in another country and the national anthem plays and you know, if you don't have a pulse, you don't get chills and you're just playing, you know, you try out for you, but you play for your country. We are a flawed country, but we are the United States of America. And, you know, uh, God bless me to be a part of this country and I'm proud of it. I'll do everything in my power to make it bigger, better, stronger. And so being an Olympian um, and meddling and standing up on the podium, you've seen it, right? Oh, Footballers yeah. don't get to do it. You they don't. And I've said it before. Like, I wish there wasn't a way football could be because I feel the same with you. I love the Olympics, but I only know it as a spectator. I know it as just a proud American who cheers. It doesn't matter if it's women's basketball, men's basketball, curling, ice luge. I don't care. I always cheer for the Americans, obviously. But then I always sit there and say, like, what would that be like to wear your nation's colors and represent them at the biggest stage? So, I it's don't know what it's like, but I can only imagine. But to bend over and have them put that medal around your neck and then the, you know, the, your anthem is being played and the flag goes up. I'm getting chills now. And I am too. I've it's... lived this life 
and many times in many countries. And it's such an honor. It's such an honor. And I happen to have had that opportunity. So I never take it for granted. That's so cool. Well, I sit here as a father of three young kids, two boys and a girl. And I look around and I think at times, just take for granted that whatever my daughter wants to do, if it's soccer or volleyball or whatever sport she wants to play, there's a hundred options in town that she can play at any particular level. No different than when I signed my boys up to play their sports at any particular level. And, you know, to hear you reflect back on your time and, and so many other women like you and other men who were also pioneers of, of Title IX and women's opportunities, there, there was also a lot. But like to know that her opportunities now to pursue, whether it is to pursue sports or just education in general, comes on the backs of, of so many people like you who didn't have similar opportunities growing up, but because of your, you know, relentlessness and, and attitude and to push the ball forward, my little nine-year-old girl doesn't have to wake up one day and say, there's no women's soccer tournament for me. There, it, we don't even, it, it doesn't even cross our mind. So I just want you to know as a father of a young girl who can really do whatever she wants to do, knowing that it was due to a lot, you know, due to yourself and so many other people like you, what you accomplished, you say, you, you know, you did change the world. You changed this country. You changed how people think you're an inspiration. You're a role model. And for you to take the time out of your busy schedule to come here and share so many great stories, so many personal stories here on you think, um, this has been as enjoyable. And I don't say this lightly, this has been as enjoyable and enlightening a conversation as we've had so far on you think. And I just thank you so much for the time and the perspective of, uh, agreeing to join us. Well, let me just close by saying, you know, your daughter should expect to have opportunities. My generation hoped to have opportunities. So she will have responsibility. And, and then lastly, she should never stop, you know, uh, you know, working, wanting or dreaming. Everything is possible. And all she has to do is put in the work. I'm going to make her listen because she'll probably listen to you more than she'll listen to me. She's of probably, my kids are tired of my voice. Well, Nancy, again, thank you so much for your time. Best of luck with the season. Best of luck coaching your son. I hope that is a incredible experience for the both of you. And uh, just best of luck with, I'm sure there's some other chapter of your life that still hasn't been written. That will be exciting. And I can't wait to uh, see what's next. Well, thank you for having me on the show and, and good luck to, to you and your family and everything. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Nancy. Take care. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with legendary basketball player, coach, icon, pioneer, activist. Uh, and there's so many words to describe Nancy Lieberman. And I just felt like that conversation was as powerful, as relevant as, as any conversation we've had thus far here on you think. I mean, just listening to her share stories about not only her upbringing and going to play at Rucker Park and then her interactions with Muhammad Ali and Kobe Bryant and these, these stories and people that shaped her worldview and her perspective and her passion for, for the game of basketball. I just think there's so many lessons that we all can take out of it, whether that's coaching or whether that's parenting or just in our own quest to be successful in our own quest to achieve great things. I just think Nancy Lieberman is just such a great voice and such a great, uh, you know, perspective that, that we can all take so much from. So I, I had as good a time interviewing Nancy as, as anybody that I've had thus far. And I don't say that lightly because we've had some incredible conversations here. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys take a lot from it. Um, cause I know I did. 
At this time, as you guys well know, I'm going to bring in my producer, Tasha. Tasha, what's up? I know you got some uh, audience questions that has become a, a weekly tradition for us here. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you have for me today. Yeah, we have a couple of good ones. And Nancy really riles you up, doesn't she? Going back to Nancy really quick. She makes me want to like train for something. I don't know what it's for. but Oh my God. I feel like I I couldn't agree more. She was amazing. One of our first questions is, are coaching clinics for young kids legit or mostly just a ploy to get money from parents? You know, I think like anything, I think it's all, you know, based on the setup. I mean, do I, do I think we need to bring in young kids and sit them in an auditorium and, and give lectures and PowerPoints and to best practices of playing whatever particular sport and motivational speeches? I don't. I mean, do I think that there's a place for it with maybe some older kids, high school kids, college kids, where there is an ability to be in a more clinic fashion and have kids sit there and bring in, you know, guest speakers and people who can talk about you know, attitude and preparation and, and motivation and, you know, all those things. Yeah, I do. So I think like anything at all, I'd, my first question would be how old are the kids and what's the format of the clinic? Are hmm. we spending time out on the field? And I'm, and I have really good instructors that understand not just the game, but they understand how to instruct that age, you know, relative to the game. And we can really spend time with them in a clinic fashion and, and teach them fundamentals and teach them footwork and teach them skill or, you know, whatever the sport is. Yes. I think those are, I think those are legitimate. Do I think there's a lot of young, you know, clinics, camps, showcases that are predatory and they just parents pay a boatload of money and they send their kid there and they play, you know, they play pickup games and there's no real instruction and there's no real lessons and the kids leave. And all they did was in essence babysit. Yeah. I think there's a ton of that. So I, I don't think there's a clear answer necessarily, Tasha, to this question. I think the first thing is as a parent, you got to find out who's coaching it. What is their expertise? What is their experience coaching young kids in this particular form or fashion? How old is my kid? How, you know, and so I think there's so many different levels of appropriateness. If done right, it could be a good use of your money. If it's the yeah. wrong thing, then yes, it's a money grab. And I think there's very little the kids take out of it if it's not done correctly. Do you think like the younger ages are more money grabs and older you can like you get more exposure and can get recruited that yeah, way? Or is... Totally. I mm -hmm. think there's more in it for the older kids. I think they're more mature. I think they're the ability to get through to them and make impact on them is a little bit better. Right. I think with the older kids, you can talk a little bit more about, you know, long term and they're a little more mature. They have a little more perspective on life and their goals and their aspirations. And maybe they're high right. school kids and you talk about college and there's the ability to be recruited like there. Yes. Yeah, so I think with the older kids, to your point, it's, it, it's a, it's a different animal. I think for young kids, none of that matters at all for young kids, a clinic, a camp, a show, whatever you want to call it should be about teaching fundamentals, laying a good foundation into what it takes to play sports, not only from a skill level, but from a mentality perspective, from an approach perspective, discipline, you know, it's all about those little things that now you're going to build upon as they approach that high school level or, or beyond. So yeah, I think every mm -hmm. camp needs to be geared towards the ages and the, the appropriateness of those ages determines how they go about setting up the camp and how they go about impacting these kids for sure. That's good. The next question is pretty interesting. It says, Greg, if you are a coach on a team, how would you handle what you are an unruly parent who's disrespectful in front of the kids on the team? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, we've, we've said this a million times. Um, often the hardest part of youth sports are the adults. Mm-hmm. And it could be the coach, it could be the parent, it could be a combination of both. Um, you know, so on teams that I coach, I, I've talked about this at length. I'm very upfront with the families about setting expectations. I'm very clear in communications of what's expected, not only out of the kid, but of the entire family and the entire experience. Um, if there was an incident that needed to be handled, I think like anything else, it needs to be handled head on. I think you need to pull that, that adult, that parent, that coach, whoever it is aside. I don't think it needs to be done in front of everybody. And we're going to have a conversation and I'm going to lay out to that parent. Again, I'm going to lay out, here's the expectations of everyone involved in our program and our team. Here's how we expect people to act. Um, if this was a, a single isolated incident, we would talk about it and we'd say, Hey, going forward. These are the expectations, and we're not going to tolerate this. And then, of course, if this is a, you know, a a single person who continues to act inappropriately time and time again, then unfortunately, the conversation becomes, you know, whether that kid, whether the kid's a great kid or not. Unfortunately, you know, the conversation comes to whether that kid has a future being a part of your team. Because at the end of the day, it could be your best player, it could be your worst player, but the team culture, and at the young age, that involves the parents. The team Mm -hmm. culture will always last longer than the individual ability of each child. So as the coach, you need to keep that big picture in mind. And sometimes, sometimes you do have to let a player who might be a great player walk if it's in the best interest of keeping the culture clean of your team. So fortunately, I haven't had a lot of that in the teams that I've coached, um, but I've had a few conversations offline with parents and just had to reset, reset the standard, reset the expectations of, uh, of how to act. I mean, listen, we all have our weak moments. We all have our moments where we, you know, probably do things or say things we shouldn't. And then we reflect back. So I'm not here to punish someone for, for their weakest moment, but if it's a pattern of behavior, it needs to be addressed or they need to move on to a different team. How do parents usually receive you when you're pulling them aside? I I think they receive it well. I I think Mm -hmm. the parents who, who have the perspective of realizing maybe where they went wrong, um, they take it and they're, they're very upfront and they recognize, Hey, I won't, it won't happen again. It was a weak moment. Here's, you know, the context of why it happened. And sometimes their context and, and explanations are completely legitimate and I get it, but I still share to them. Okay. This can't happen in front of the kids. It can't happen, mm-hmm. you know, over time and time again. Um, if a parent becomes combative and wants to argue back and forth with me, you know, I, I say it all the time is you're picking the wrong fight. You know, you're picking the wrong guy. I'm going to, I'm not going to back down. I, I believe strongly in how this is. And if you don't agree to the rules of our team, there's other teams you can go play for. You can take your, your son or daughter and go play on a different team. If you don't like our rules, I'm very upfront with our rules. If you don't agree or like them, that's okay, but it's not your team. So you have to go find another, you have to go find a different team. If you're not willing <laughs> to conform to how we're going to run our team. Oh, that's very, good. I just, it's pretty straightforward. Laying it out. Well, that's it for our audience questions this week. And you can always submit them at Greg Olson or at you think on TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. And thank you guys, as always. Thank you, Tasha. Thank you all for continuing to listen here on you think. Uh, Please rate, review, subscribe, wherever you guys get your pods. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week.